Hey, welcome to episode 77 of the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. Hope you're starting to get your head around this whole uh, COVID-19 thing. Um, just a quick note on that. This episode with Darren Ferugia was recorded on the 22nd of March, 2020. So at that stage, all the current restrictions were not in place. So just keep that in mind as uh, Darren and I chat about that at the start of the interview. Okay, episode 77, Darren Ferugia, here we go. today is Australian drumming legend Darren Ferrugia. When I was a beginner drummer in New Zealand in the early 90s, there wasn't much access to international drummers apart from, say, Modern Drummer Magazine or the Starlicks or DCI videos. So I used to sit down every Saturday night and study Darren doing his thing as the house band drummer on Hey Hey It's Saturday. He used to blow me away with his playing and... Um, crack me up with his quirk and, and sticking his head in the TV shot where it wasn't supposed to be. So, Dad studied with Frank Corniola and Virgil Donati and he also spent time in the US studying with Martin Smitty Smith and Joe Morello. One day, Darren got a call to depth for Virgil on the Burt Newton show, which ended up opening some doors and eventually led him to his call up to Hey Hey It's Saturday. Through Hey Hey, he's got to play with Tom Jones, Tina Arena, the Commodores, Trisha Yearwood, Joe Cocker, B.B. King, Bonnie Wright, Jeff Skunk Baxter, Randy Crawford, Roger Daltrey, Barry Manilow, Jackson Brown, Renee Geyer, Thelma Houston, Tommy Emanuel, and that's just to name a few. Darren started teaching at the age of 16 and has maintained that right through his career. As well as spending a few years teaching in the UK, he's released a couple of books called Groove Perspectives and Groove Perspectives Play Along. And he has a top-notch drumming YouTube channel, which has great content, looks awesome, and sounds fantastic. Along with all that, he's a pretty mean woodworker, and he shares an alter ego by the name of Giuseppe the Giraffe on his Instagram. So go check that out. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a big welcome to Darren Ferrucci. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast, Darren Ferugia. What a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Stevie. Mate, how you doing? Yeah, good. How are you? Not too bad. Crazy fucking times, though. Um, Man, I can't believe it. Like, I, I actually officially have no work. Oh, wow. So just yeah. just so you know, people, today is the 22nd of March, um, right in the middle of COVID-19 craziness. Um, as of about half an hour ago, um, looks like Victoria and New South Wales are going into lockdown. Um, all non-essential um, services will be stopped. Um, for me, I don't know how that's going to affect me yet. I'll find that out tomorrow. 
Um, yeah, same. Yeah. And yeah, um, like you're saying, all your work's gone. Yeah, well, uh, you know, at the start of this week, um, it might have been Monday, I got my first email to say that a gig that I had in April had been cancelled. And uh, that's when it kind of started to hit me. And then over the next few days, you know, as things changed in the media and the uh, and the circumstances had changed, uh, you know, more and more of my gigs got cancelled. So um, mm. I thought, well, this is fine. I, I, at least I can rely on teaching because I've got a few students that come to me privately. Yeah. But I guess that's um, not going to be happening either. Yeah. I, I, I guess, don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. Um. Yeah, I guess that's up to you and your students to suss it out, eh? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I guess, do you have the option to switch it to like a video lesson? Um, yeah, so I've done one Skype lesson so far. Mm. So um, I'm going to look into that with my students and if yep. they want that as an option. But, yeah, there's just a few things to check out, a bit of research to do mm. just to see where things are at now because it's a, it's a constantly evolving situation. It sure it's, is. It's incredible. It sure is. And, yeah, lots getting... Lots getting said about it, and um, it's a lot of fear mongering going on, and the, yeah, you know, can't get too caught up in social media because, um, man, there's some bullshit on there at the moment. Eh? it's just crazy. <laughs> I oh, know. Mate, mate. So yeah, just trying to we're just trying to keep our head here, and um, yeah, just keep our family safe. And we we've we've had the kids home from school all this week, although schools are all open. Um, I believe they shouldn't be, and by the time this podcast comes out, I'm sure they'll be closed. But yeah. Um, it was our view to pull them out, which we did. Yeah, so um, man, it's so weird. Yeah. All right, let's let's um leave that for a bit. Um, I want to talk about how I first got to know about Darren Frugia when I was living in New Zealand in the early nineties. Used to be this variety TV show called Hey Hey It's Saturday. Um, it was the first variety TV show that I'd ever seen. In New Zealand and being an up-and-coming drummer um, the only sort of access I had as anybody did back in those times was Mod Drummer magazine which came out once a month at the store a few Starlux videos and you were on TV so I used to sit up every Saturday night and watch you play you know watch the show and watch you play <laughs> and just um on that red Yamaha kit and used to stick your head where it wasn't supposed to go and pull faces and Oh, it was great, man. So, yeah, you had a big part of my my early drumming upbringing, you know. So I just wanted, oh, to, I wanted to tell you that. Thanks, Stevie. That's a, well, it's an honour. You know, as I was saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm all these, you know, the show finished just over 20 years ago. Mm. And all these years later, I, I'm still getting comments like the one you just gave me, you know, and, you know, the situation where, you know, people will say to me um, that they – you know, used to watch the show and they would, they, you know, they would drum, that they play the drums or did play the drums as kids and they used to watch me mm. on TV. And it's, 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 it's still a bit weird for me, you know, even yeah, right. all these years later. It's, yeah. The fact that it's all these years later makes it even more weird, I guess. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's nice. It's a, you know, I can't ask for any more than that. I'm, it's very special that, 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 that people would, because, you know, I'm actually quite, um, dare I say it, a very sentimental person. So yep. if I meet a drummer who's had a very strong influence on me, you know, local drummer or an international drummer, mm. uh, I get really gushy and sentimental about it and I want to tell them how much, you know, they meant to me. That's so, exactly what um, I do. I don't know if you've heard my podcast, but I've just about had all my favourite drummers, local drummers on the show now. So 
it's been great, man. I, I'm, I'm the same. It's like I just want to I want to tell you what I think, you know. And sometimes it goes down well, and other guys are a little bit. Oh yeah, okay. Back off a little. No, bit. I, I, I laugh it all up, mate. I have no great. pride. I laugh it all up. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, all right. So before we get back into sort of where we're at now, and and also more into hey hey, let's roll right back to the early days. Um, were you uh, born in Melbourne? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Okay, so you've always been in Melbourne. I, I know you've moved um, o- you moved overseas a bit. But I understand that. Yeah, so mm. basically, um, I've lived my whole life in in Melbourne, except for a four and a half year period where I lived in London. Mm-hmm. So basically, Melbourne, Melbourneian, born and bred. Right, and your and fa- your father's a drummer. Yeah, he's um he's a- he actually retired from drumming about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, after he had. He had a double bypass, like he had double bypass surgery. And I see, I think from that point on, um, he just didn't want to drive around to gigs at night and lug gear around. Yeah, and he's, right. he's in his, uh, he's in his mid seventies now. Mm. So, um, he's, uh, just, you know, he, I mean, he was never a full-time drummer. He, you know, he only ever played on the weekends, but you know, it was enough for me to learn a lot from, you know, going, going to see him play and, mm. Certainly, you know, my, my earliest inspiration was, you know, him. You know, he was the only drummer I knew. Yeah. And who was some of the drummers he was listening to that obviously you were, you, you would have got to hear? Um, well, my, I mean, my dad um, sort of made me aware of drummers like um, Buddy Rich, Joe Morello, um, you know, but my dad, you know, probably listen mostly to um you know country music and he was a fan of the rolling stones and 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 you know early rock and roll so um you know my parents record collection or my dad's record collection sort of comprised mostly of you know johnny cash records elvis presley uh and credence clearwater which you know i played I played to a lot of those. There's one particular album that I played to a lot, which was Willie and the Poor Boys, and I'm talking about when I was ten, right, ten years old. So when did you start, um, when did you start playing? Five? Were you four or five? Uh, I, yeah, I think my parents bought me my first kit when I was about five, right. And then, um, and they sent me to lessons when I was about six, and I had lessons for a little while. I was a bit too stupid and didn't have a long enough attention span to really understand what was going on in terms of reading music and learning to play paradiddles and stuff. But I kept playing. So um, yeah, at, at at the age of ten, I got another. I got my second kit or my third kit by that stage. Yeah. My third kit at the age of ten, which was a hand me down. You're doing from all my right dad. there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a hand me down from my dad, which I still have. I still have that kit. I still use it. So it's the first kit I ever played. Is that and your? Then, is that um, your Lud- your Ludwig kit? Uh, no, it's it's actually it's actually um, a Japanese kit from the late sixties, okay. um, which is a Boston is a Boston kit. So my dad had that. He was working with that, and then they bought me a couple of kits, and then eventually I got the Boston kit for my tenth birthday, when my dad bought himself a in nineteen seventy seven or seventy six. He bought himself a pearl wood fiberglass kit. And those kits are worth a lot of money now, so yeah. he still has it. Awesome. Um, so um, yeah, I, I, I from about the age of ten, I was playing along to you know Hot August Night by Neil Diamond. Um, there was a Tom Jones record I used to play along to, and I ended up getting that record signed by Tom Jones when I got to play with him on, yeah. on Hey Hate Saturday, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Um, 
uh, yeah, and then after that, from about uh, the age of 12, I started doing gigs, just playing mm. in a, a wedding band, like a dance band with some kids that were older than me. Mm. What kind of music? Were you into jazz at that stage? Um, no, at that stage, the only music that I was really aware of um, in terms of a, a sort of dance band or, or wedding band repertoire was the, the music that I heard my dad play. So I used to go to hear my dad play a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I just sort of learned all of these songs just by hearing them. So I had a, for a 12 year old kid, I had a lot of repertoire and then I, I didn't really get into jazz until I was maybe 13. When I say jazz, you know, when I, when I hit 13, uh, I discovered George Benson Okay. and I was, I was listening to George Benson, a friend of mine gave me a, a tape of um, Weekend in LA with Harvey Mason. And that's kind of when I kind of zoned in on this this music that wasn't, you know, Elvis, Credence or whatever. It was sort of somewhat, you know, more sophisticated, let's say. Yeah. And and so um, I, w- I was, you know, like, <clears throat> to give you an example, in, in 1977, I went to see ABBA. That was my first concert. In 1980, three years later, I went to see George Benson. That was my second concert. So in a three-year period, I went from ABBA to George Benson. Right. So so that's when I kind of started here, you know, listening to drummers with a lot of um, interest, you know. So on those George Benson records, it was uh, uh, Harvey Mason was playing drums, on certainly on the records that I had. And then um, one of my cousins bought me another George Benson record and it had two drummers on it. There was Harvey Mason, who I was very familiar with, and there was this other guy that I hadn't quite, you know, just heard his name mentioned a couple of times, and and that was Steve Gadd. And I remember hearing Steve Gadd for the first time. Um, By this stage, I'm 14 or 15. I, I remember hearing Steve Gadd for the first time on a track, not knowing it was actually Steve Gadd. Mm-hmm. And something about it just sounded different to me. It's just, it sounded polished. It was, it really tickled my ears. It was really beautiful. And that, you know, when I found out it was Steve Gadd and then everyone was talking about Steve Gadd, you know, that's when my, that that's really when my obsession began. And then two, two other things happened or three other things happened around that time. You know, this is, you know, this is sort of like me coming out of the, or at least going into the cocoon, let's say. Um, when I was 14, I saw David Jones play. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Jones. Oh, but... yeah, he's been on the show. Yeah, he, yeah his, great. His, his name comes up a lot. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he you know, he, about a lot. My, my, my dad, um, there used to be these music expos where they would, uh, like trade shows, and my dad took me to one when I was 14, and there was... Um, you know, David Jones drum clinic. Well, I didn't know what a drum clinic was. I had no idea what a drum clinic was. Mm-hmm. And as far as I knew, David Jones was the drum, the, the singer in the monkeys. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, you know, again, I heard this name coming up, you know, David Jones. And so I heard him play for the first time and um, he played and then he spoke a lot because he was doing a clinic. Mm. And um, he taught, he was talking about how he was a full-time drummer, you know, he's a professional drummer. And, that was the day that changed my life. You know, that's when I decided, well, that's what I want to do. Mm. I, I just want to play the drums full time. I don't want to go to work and do that sort of stuff. Um, so uh, I made that decision on that day. And then, you know, within a year of that, um, <clears throat> I saw Virgil Donati play on a TV show. And that's when I said to my dad, okay, I need a teacher because I, I, I want some of that stuff. 
and 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 then at the same time that's when i discovered um that's when i discovered that i was going to school with um i was going to school with john corniola right who's frank's younger brother and so john hooked me up with his brother so you know within this 12 month period i saw david jones play i was friends with john uh, i saw virgil play on tv i made all these decisions about what career path i wanted and I started studying with Frank and I studied with Frank for three years and it was the most um, enjoyable three years of my life, you know, in lots right. of ways. Right. And um, I don't know much about Frank. I know who he is. I've known who he is for a long time. Um, he owns Drum Tech down there, yep. doesn't he? Yep. Um, what sort of music was he teaching you? Was he a jazz player? Uh, no, he wasn't a jazz player so mm. much. Um Frank was an, inc- I was just lucky to get onto a teacher who had this really comprehensive method. Mm. So, you know, my first lesson was, you know, hand technique and look, get, you know, getting my hands in shape and rudiments. And then that was, you know, um, you know, I was just working on my hands, you know, constantly like through, through every lesson, but, you know, got me into reading and worked on my coordination and chart reading, um, rudiments. And it was just so comprehensive. And, it, it's a funny thing because I just felt that it was such an honor to learn from Frank mm. that, you know, that he, you know, I called him up and, um, you know, after being introduced to him over the phone by his brother, um, I had a chat with Frank over the phone and he said, look, I've got one vacancy left. I've got this guy, this guy I was teaching has gone overseas. I don't know when he's coming back so I can slot you in. So he slotted me into this, um, you know, his schedule. And so I was, I was so honored that I, I just figured, okay, the pressure's on, you know, I, I don't want to lose him as a teacher. I don't want him to sack me as a student. Yep. So I just went nuts and practiced for four hours a day. Right. And again, it wasn't till all of these years later, like when I was in my forties that he said to me um, that, you know, I learned, you know, I learned, more in those three years than he would have taught someone in five or six years. Um, And and that was just me in some ways being really naive, but also just really wanting to please him and make him happy because I respected him so much, Hmm. Um, still do. Uh, So so I just practiced. I just went nuts practicing and just devoured all of this uh, information that he was giving me. Hmm. Um, You started uh, studying with uh, Virgil as well, didn't you? Yeah, so after after a three, I think I learned from Frank for about three years. And then um, I started, you know, I was going to see Virgil Donati play a lot. And so when I was in college, um, I approached him for lessons and he ended up being my teacher for about three months. It wasn't a long period because he was really busy. Hmm. Um, but I, I got so much out of that three months. It was, it was, that was another sort of intense period um and yeah and i i basically went to him for two reasons um because he was a drummer that i was seeing a lot like i would go and see him every week um it was going to make the learning process quite easy because i could ask him questions about what he did at gigs or whatever and um i went to him because i wanted to sort of work on my technique a little further and we know virgil has incredible technique but what people generally don't know about Virgil is that he studied with Philly Joe Jones, the great jazz drummer. Um, 
And so I asked Virgil if he could show me some of the stuff that um, Philly Joe gave him, um, and and which which he did, which was again, which was re- really great. And he was he's a great teacher too. I really enjoyed learning from him. Mm. Um, you headed over to the states a bit to study. So how did that come about? <clears throat> While I was um, finishing up at college, mm-hmm. I applied to go to the Musicians Institute, which back in those days was like the Percussion Institute of Technology, the PIT. Right. And um, I got accepted, but I didn't have the money to do the course. And so what I did instead was I just worked, saved a lot of money, and then headed over to the States just to take some private lessons with some people. Mm. And uh, I got to have um, some lessons in New York with, um, you know, Marvin Smitty Smith, um, Adam Nussbaum. Um, that was at the Drummers Collective. And then I was also heading over to New Jersey to have some lessons with Joe Morello. Oh, wow. And that, that was, again, that was, I was, I think I was in New, New York for um, about six weeks. Yeah, I crammed a lot into a short amount of time. Uh, and I also went to Los Angeles as part of that trip. Uh, I got to see a lot of great gigs. I went to a lot of gigs. I went, I I got to see, you know, I I went to the, um, the first Buddy Rich Memorial Scholarship concert. So I got to see Gad, Weckl, Vinny. Um, I saw Joe Morello, Louis Belson. I, I got to see Harvey Mason play. Uh, I, I just got to see everyone play. I got to see Art Blakey play, Mickey Roker. Um, who else did I see? Tom Breckline. I had a lesson with him and saw him play at a gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite an extensive. I, I went to the Baked Potato. I got to see Carlos Vega play. Right. Who again is one of my one of my favourite drummers. Um, so that was an intense. Like you know that was. You know, in total, I was a, I was out of town for eleven weeks. So part of that was spent in Los Angeles, and part of it was spent in Europe. Um, and again, it just, the, it just taking in all of this information like a sponge. Right. You mentioned Martin Smitty Smith. Um, he was drummer for a Senior Hall show. That's correct. It? Yeah. Right. Was he doing that show around that time you were getting lessons? No, this was before that. So, um, <clears throat> um. Uh, actually, while I was that year, while I was in Los Angeles, I went and did a a, a Paramount Studios tour, right. and we we ended up on the set of Arsenio Hall, and the band was rehearsing, and it was Terry Lynn Carrington playing drums. Oh, right. Okay, and uh, I remember um, Tony Levin was playing bass. Mm. So at that stage, Marvin was still living in New York. Right, and I would also say that at that stage in the eighties, Marvin. And um, let's say Jeff Tane Watts was, you know, those two were the the New York heavyweights, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the in the jazz in the jazz scene. I think back in those days, I think um, Dave Weckl was still living in New York as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Marvin, I think, ended up moving to Los Angeles sometime later and did did that show. Okay, the reason I asked that, I was thinking if he was doing that show, and you had the lessons with him, was there anything that you sort of took back? For when you like when you're on hey hey was there anything that he would have ever um, told you about uh, about being a TV, n- a TV drummer you know that's why I, that's um, why I thought no that, fun, yeah. no funnily enough that didn't happen but I, I, on another trip to New York I think that was uh, sorry into the US in 1999 
I um, I was still doing Hey Hey It's Saturday, and I caught up with Marvin, and he actually remembered teaching me, which was really nice. Wow, I cool. caught up with I caught up with him, and um, at that stage we both had our own TV gigs, um, so we would, we talked a little about that. That's cool. And I, actually, it was on that same trip in '99 that I actually got to go to the Letterman show, and and watch that show, and you know just take in that incredible band, Anton, Anton Figg, Figg, right? Figg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. He was a I mean because um. Like I said earlier, I used to watch you on Hey Hey It's Saturday and then later on um, Letterman, I think a couple of years later, Letterman started showing in New Zealand. So I would stay up and then watch Anton Fig, you know. And when yeah, board, we were... I used to play his signature Vic Firth sticks, the really long ones, you know, back, back when he was playing those sticks. And It's funny how it all sort of, we all kind of connect somehow, eh? Yeah, it's um, great, man. It's it's so great, and, and you know, the, like the world is a big place, but it's not that big now, nah, you know, because nah. the way we can communicate with each other um, instantly, and you know, the you know, social media and and just technology that allows us to do that. But you know, even more so, um, it's just that 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 connection that as a drumming community is really yep. amazing. You know, I always I, I love it. Like I love being part of the community and. You know, whenever I go to drumming events and just catch up with people and, and, and then, you know, I start to see the, the children of people who I used to teach. Right. And their dads who were students of mine are saying, hey, listen, I'd really like you to teach my kid. You know, all of that sort of stuff. I just, yeah, I love it. Speaking of a, a drumming event, um, this was probably mid-2000s, I reckon. Um, you played a Sydney drumming event here in Sydney at the... Yep. Can't remember. I was trying to remember the name of the, the um, the thing today, but I couldn't remember it anyway. Um, you, you did a clinic. Uh, well, no, sorry, you you played for. It was like a yeah clinic, kind of a dark room. I think you were playing, or demonstrating the new PDP drums. I think I think that's what it was. Okay. I was thinking about that today. Yeah. Anyway, so you were playing, and you started off with the solo, and you started doing this alternating flam thing on the hot hats i remember that do you do you remember I, the guy do you remember the guy that stood up and he put his hand up and he said he said i don't i i don't think you're alternating your hands when you get really fast i think you're just changing over to just just you know right, you know right hand with the with the soft flam because we couldn't see it and you you said no no actually watch this and and you played it again but you really accentuated your hands and it was just, oh, man, you just blazed it, eh? I, the, the reason why I remember that is because <laughs> I, I, I remember I was doing a solo. I started the solo on the hi-hat, and I remember that when I did the alternating flams, yeah, I, I got some reaction from the audience. Yeah, someone, yeah, we were just did, like, some, whoa, look at this. It's like Tony Williams or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and then my mate yeah, <laughs> stuck his hand up and said, no, I, don't, I think, I think, like when it's starting to get fast, you're not alternating, and you said, "No, no, I am." Watch this. That there was pretty go. cool. <laughs> I, I think I, I did that. Sh- I did that show twice. Yeah, <laughs> and I think on that one that you were talking about, I, I, I think that was a Saturday afternoon. It was an afternoon Saturday afternoon. Yep. Yep. And then um, on that particular show, Omar was on there. Yep. He I played. Think- la- he played late. Yeah. But we we missed that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I I remember that, and I remember actually then flying back to Melbourne, straight after that, going home, getting my suitcase, going back to the airport, and flying to London. Right. Um, but 
but I do remember that. And there was another one that I did before that. It's the same event, but some maybe a year or a couple of years before that. And um, I remember uh, Chad Wackerman and Steve Smith were sitting next to each other mm-hmm. in the audience um, while I was doing my um, <laughs> while I was doing my you know workshop or wherever it was, and just thinking how surreal that was. I mean, it's yeah. just so stressful, you know, having people yeah, yeah. like that that you've listened to on records and they're just in there sort of checking you out. It's, you, I, you've I, I, uh, you, you, in one of your newsletters I read, you had a, a situation like that when Wickle was watching you. Dave Wickle uh, was... Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I talked about that in the last video that I the put The video, up. that's, right, that's video, right. Yeah, yep. a few days ago. Um, you know, just because when you do gigs like the Drummers Weekend... And you know the, the 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 thing in Sydney that I did. Yep. Um, you know it's an international event, so those guys are going to be there checking you out. They want to know who the the local guys are, and um, so yeah, you know that that happens, and there's no way around it. And sometimes, it, it, you know, if someone like Weckles watching you, it's it's <laughs> very nerve wracking. Yeah. Um, or or um, you know, Virgil or anyone like that. I had a similar experience where um, Vinnie Colaiuta uh, heard heard me play a set, and it was like you know, and and I was playing a set with um, uh, Kenny Kirkland, the the late great piano player, and so here I am on stage playing with Kenny, and just you know, sort of torn between enjoying this experience of playing with Kenny Kirkland, but you know, Vinnie Colaiuta was at the bar watching me play and so there was this sort of these these feelings of joy <laughs> joy <laughs> and fear, fear. <laughs> at the same time it's 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 terrifying but you know it's, it's, it's un, unavoidable at times if, you, if you're going to put yourself out out there people are going to hear you sure. play has there been a situation like that where it's kind of overwhelmed you and you've you've made a big mistake that um, you reckon those guys would have heard <laughs> Um, fortunately not. Uh, I think, um, I think by that stage, you know, when, because, you know, I was playing so much, you know, weekly live to wear television, you do to some degree develop uh, an ability to just zone in on what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I didn't sort of get to the point where I became so self-conscious or so self-aware that I completely botched it. Fortunately. Right. Okay, let's go back a bit now. Um, Virgil ended up getting you your first TV gig, got you to debt for him. So can you talk a little bit about that, how that kind of went down? Well, if I go, if I go back to the, the lessons with um, Virgil, mm. um, Virgil at that stage was really busy. Like he was the, he's, he was the number one guy in Melbourne. He was doing all the, all the sessions and um, just, just doing everything really. Mm-hmm. And, um, while I was learning from him, I said, I, you know, at the end of a lesson, I said, you know, look, you know, what do I, what, what do I have to do to, to make it into this, into the music scene in Melbourne? And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, 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 I expected him to give me some kind of advice, you know, do this, do this, do this, contact these, but I, you know, I expected it to be quite comprehensive. And he, all he said was, his reply was, um, you've got nothing to worry about. You've got the right attitude and the right approach. And that was it. And I wanted him to say more than that. 
So I kind of had to settle with being comforted by, well, at least I have the right attitude and the right approach. We'll see what happens. But, you know, he, you know, he, he was obviously a man of his word because that's when I was 19. So three years later, when I was 22, he got me to debt for him. Mm. Um, so, I mean, three years for a 19-year-old is a significant length of time. But, mm. you know, obviously in that three years, I'd made enough of an impression and started to get some gigs and all that sort of stuff. So I started to gain some experience that he felt was good enough for, to ask me to, to debt for him. So that was that that was amazing. So I did the first show uh, and this was so I'd never been into a TV studio before. Right. What was the walk- what was the show? Sorry, it was the Burt Newton show. So it was right, a live okay. to wear a live to wear midday show. Right. And you know I had to go in there, play live to wear, <laughs> um, playing along to click, reading charts, playing on a kit that I couldn't adjust because there was no space for me to adjust it. So I was playing okay. Virgil's kit. It was it was terrifying, but um, you know I wanted to make an impression and so much so that you know the md was happy with it and he asked me he, he said to me look you know I'll, I'll make sure i get you and virgil can't do any other shows so i ended up depping on that um i think i did about six or seven shows in that year and that was it you know like that again that was that sort of opened the floodgates so that was in 1989 yeah. right. and I, I, that was, and then I didn't get the Hey Hey gig till '91. Right. Who was who was on the Hey Hey gig before you? Um, the drummer before me was Ron Sanderlands, who okay. um, passed away just a little oh. over a year ago. Okay. How much were you playing? You just said that the floodgates opened after that sort of TV session. Um, why was that? Were, were the people seeing you? perform or was it the md was starting to give you more work sort of out, outside with gigs or well um the the md um was a, a gentleman by the name of ross burton and um who has also um passed away um and ross ran a recording studio he was also the md for um uh, Young Talentine, which was another variety show. I didn't get to play on that, but that was, you know, David Jones used to do that. And I think Virgil ended up doing that too. So Ross had, um, Ross was a musical director and a, a ranger and he had this recording studio. And so through him, I ended up getting, you know, just getting a lot more sessions. So my, you know, my proper kind of recording career, like, you know, as a, you know, getting recording sessions uh, sort of happened as a result of that TV gig. And right. I think also then, you know, if you, if you do, if you can, if you can cut a life, like, I guess there's a certain benchmark. If you can cut a life to wear TV gig, mm. I guess people must figure that, you know, you you are of a standard where you can sort of handle a bit of pressure, pressure and, yeah. and, and uh, you know, I could read charts and I could play with the click and all that sort of stuff. So that, that kind of meant that, the guys who were playing on that show and other professional musicians would recommend me or book me for gigs. So um, sometimes it just takes one or two, you know, really good experiences for that, that will open the um, doors to many um, opportunities. Mm. Do you remember who you were listening to at that stage? Who were you getting kind of influenced by? Um, So at at that, at that time, um, 
drummer drummer wise um I was probably listening to lots of Vinnie Colaiuta and Dave Weckl and Dennis Chambers, um, Tom Breckline, um, uh, Carlos Vega, Jeff Beccaro. I mean, you know, probably from about 15, 14 or 15 through to about 19 or 20, mm-hmm. you know, it was Steve Gadd and Jeff Beccaro. Right. Because they were they were on every record that I ever yeah. bought. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes, so, yeah, so sometimes the, they were sometimes they were both on the same album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite, I've quite got look, man. I've, I'm, you know, I've got so many records where they, you know, those Algero. Yeah. Um, there's jo- Ricky Lee Jones, um, Larry Carlton, um, Michael McDonald. There's just a whole bunch of records where those two guys just played on all of those rec- records. Yep. yep. Good stuff. Okay, so let's talk. Start talking about hey, hey, how that came about. What were you doing? Was it an audition, or did you get asked to come and do the gig? Um, I, I got asked. So basically, what happened was, um, so again, I'm just going to backtrack uh, a year or two back from that period. So when I when I got back from the states, around the time that I was depping for Virgil on this TV show. Um, I was also touring. I was in and out of town touring with the Seekers and I actually didn't like touring. So I I had to say to them, look, I'm I'm not going to do this gig anymore because I don't want to tour. And they thought that I was mad. And then the following year I got the gig, I I got the gig playing in Tommy Emanuel's band. Um, I did some, a whole bunch of gigs with that. I left that. (laughs) People thought I was mad. People really thought I was mad. because, Because of the touring? Yeah, um, I, I didn't. I wanted to establish myself in Melbourne. Like I really okay. wanted to. Right. I didn't want to keep leaving town. Okay, I didn't gotcha. want people to know that I was not in town. So, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I left touring with the Seekers and I left touring with Tommy Emmanuel. Everyone thought I was crazy, but I, I was, you know, quite uh, determined to, you know, work on my rep. You know, having a good reputation in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And so one night I was doing a gig, uh, a jazz gig in town, and um, there was a gentleman there by the name of graham lyle who was a musical director and at that stage he was the musical director or had been the musical director for the don lane show so i grew up knowing who he was and um he heard me play and we we knew each other and then he at the end of the gig he, he was just really complimentary um uh which you know which, which really meant a lot to me because he's someone who i respect and um, maybe towards the end of that year, I think it was, I got a, I, I got some, you know, some of my friends were saying, oh, you know, there's going to be, a, they're going to put a new band into Hey Hey It's Saturday and Graham Lyles, the musical director. And one of my friends was saying, oh, you know, maybe you should call him. And I said, no, no, I, I just didn't know what to to do. Anyway, mm. a friend of mine, a trumpet player by the name of Dave Nudick said, um, he said, uh, Graham Lyle's going to call you. And I knew what it was about. So um, I was kind of hoping to get this phone call. And he gave me a phone call. It was like, I remember it was two days before Christmas 1990. And um, he, he basically just said, uh, do you want to be the drummer on Hey Hey it's Saturday? And I said, absolutely, yeah. Like all my Christmases came at once. <laughs> 
So he said, okay, that's great. And then um, he said, uh, okay, so while I'm here, can I also book you for next year's Logie Awards? And there's an album <laughs> that we're going to do with um, Deborah Byrne. So it was it was incredible. Like, and at that stage, I was 23, and um, just overwhelmed. Like, I just could not could not believe my luck because you know this is a show I grew up watching since I was a you know a kid. Like from 1972, it was a my Saturday morning fix. And then, um, you know, I, I, I watched it all through high school and then, and then I got the gig on the show. So I was really familiar with the format and how it worked and how wacky and zany everyone was. And, you know, I can be wacky and zany myself. So it was, it was kind of a perfect, it was like the perfect gig for me. How long did that run for? Uh, well, while, while you were in that band, um, nine years while I was nine years. Right. So I, I saw it through to the end, um, but it had been running for I think twenty-two years, or well, the whole thing that ran for um, twenty-seven years. So I guess it right. ran for about seventeen or eighteen years before I before I did it. Yeah, I, I like I said, I only know your your phase of it. I didn't really know it was on before that because in New Zealand we never had it. Yeah, before that. Yeah, before that stage. Um, all right. So, what's a week in the life? on hey hey it's saturday so when when would your week start for the show or was it one of those cases where you're just in for a say a rehearsal during one day not even that where we everything was everything was done on the day so in in my in my first year of doing the show we would pre-record the show on a friday um the show was pre-recorded on the friday uh so we'd, we'd get there at say about nine o'clock in the morning I think taping would start at midday or one o'clock. So we'd get there nine o'clock or nine thirty, rehearse um, whatever songs we were going to play with the cameras and with the artists. And that was it. Mm. Um, And then after the first year, we ended up going live to wear. So from about, I think from about 92, we were live to wear. So we'd get there at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, um, a lot of it was just sitting around. We would rehearse yeah. if we were playing with an artist. We would rehearse with it with an artist. Maybe run it the song five times. We usually ran it once with just to run the chart. Mm. Then we'd run it with the artist. Mm. So you know we'd run it as a band, and the you know they'd bring the artist out to just sit in front of the band and make sure that they're happy with the arrangement. Mm. And then that's and then after that we'd do probably another three three runs with cameras so that all the cameras they can get their positions that that was pretty much a day of hey hey saturday and you know beyond that there was we just sat around the rest of the time for me i was you know always got to hang out with with whoever drummer the the drummers that would come on and you know in that time there was a, a lot of great drummers that came onto the show um we had um, you know, people like Mick Fleetwood was on the show. Um, Vinnie Colaiuta was on there with Sting. Jerry Brown, um, Buddy Williams was on the show. I think I, re- I think I remember the Jerry Brown one. Yeah, he was on with Stevie yeah, Wonder. With Stevie, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Jerry Brown that. was on with George Benson. Gary Novak was on there with um, Alanis Morissette. So you know, there was right. always. They're always um, just drummers to hang out with, and let alone the local guys. You know, Kerry yeah. Buchanan would be on, or um, mm-hmm. Virgil would be on. Um, I think Gordon might have been on with somebody. You know, mm. it, it was it was bu- a beautiful sort of enjoyable time to to hang out. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So what was the other six days of your week? Uh, so um, teaching. Okay. Uh, like not, I mean. Oh, so, okay, like, let's go back to that then. Sorry. I put, when did you start? You started teaching about 16. Yeah, I started teaching uh, at, during my first year of college. So I was right. 16 when I started. Right. Was that and, out of necessity to make money to get you through the college or you just wanted to teach? Um, I, I wanted to teach because, cool. you know, I had such a good teacher in Frank that um, I, I sort of wanted to, I, I wanted to do that as well. I like the idea of sharing information. So, um, uh, you know, I wanted to teach and it was a little bit of extra money. You know, I can't even remember what I charged back in those days, but I was just teaching a few kids. And, uh, you know, that was always... You know, I always had a few, you know, a few te- a few students. When 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 um, Hey Hey started, uh, then the student thing went crazy. Right, Judy, you being recognised? Uh, yeah, because um, uh, you know, because I also released a, a, a video at the at that stage too. You know, so I was really, I had an instructional video, and because of the TV gig, I was getting a lot of um, uh sort of uh people asking for um you know wanting to study with me awesome so that it was it was really great like seriously like i i i'd, I'd be a nobody if it wasn't for that gig right because it just well, it well just, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't know who you are no and, and no. here you are here you are on the gig life podcast i mean i'm <laughs> <laughs> um, so 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 yeah the the other six days were just doing gigs with other with other bands um i, yep. I led my own band called venice beach which was a, a fusion band. So we had a regular Tuesday night gig for a, a year or so. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I would, on Sundays, I would play in a Jewish wedding band. You mm. know, I just, I just did everything. I'd do recording sessions during the week for different things. You know, back in those days, you'd still do sessions for, you know, TV commercials and, you know, music for docos and stuff like that. So, um, it, it, you know, uh, the nineties the were the, the, a great period for me because I was doing exactly what I wanted. Yep. Um, of all the acts, you know, you got a lot of acts come on that show. Were you ever picked to go and tour with them, or you know, if they sat and they played with you and thought, "Oh man, I like the way this guy this guy plays. I want him on my record, or I want him to come on tour with me." Was was there ever those opportunities? Um. Not that I can recall, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, um, I that I don't I don't know that that ever happened because mm. you know I, I was just so into doing that show anyway that you know getting me out of town would have been really difficult. I, I wouldn't uh, have yeah, been into right. it. Yeah, of course. Um, now the whole goofball thing <laughs> that you had going on at Hey Hey. You know, you stick your head into a shot where you weren't supposed to, and you know, um, how did that start? Did you just do it one day, and the producers went, "Hey, man, that's great, keep doing it," or you just did it? No, anyway? I, I did it. <laughs> I, I did it because the piano player in the band used to do it. So the piano Brilliant. player um, at that it was um, Peter McCutcheon, and he used to do it. But before I was involved in the show, when I was just watching it on TV. He would always stick his head in the camera. He used to crack me right. up. Like, okay. and, so, and so I started doing it. And then right. it, what was really funny was um, 
there was a couple of shows. There was a show I couldn't do, and I got Jerry um, Jerry Pantazas to fill in for me, and Jerry did it, which was beautiful. It was brilliant. Like he was <laughs> filling in for me, and he was actually doing the same thing as well. Yeah, it, but it was a zany show. You know, we, we, it was, we yeah. were allowed to have fun, and and you know, I, I had some very um, enjoyable comedic moments. You know, of my yeah. own that I got to experience, which was yeah. fun. That's awesome. Um, towards the end, did you see the writing on the wall that it was going to? Uh, yeah. And I think by that stage, you know, I think probably for the last two years of the show, uh, the band, um, had less and less to do like that. They didn't have as many artists coming on that we would, that we would back. And so we were just basically going in there to play in and out of commercial breaks and, you know, the pluck a duck theme and all of that sort of stuff. And, I think, you know, I, I may have been looking for a way out. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, it's sort of, this is the first time I've ever spoken about it, but it it, it was like, um, you know, like the, the relationship between me and that show was sort of coming to an end anyway mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I, I always wanted to play and I liked the, I loved when we got to play with people and that just wasn't happening. So um, it kind of, I wouldn't say it got boring, but I just felt that, you know, why are they hiring us? Right. Why are they spending all this money on a band if, if, if they don't want us to do anything? So, um, mm. and, and I think also by that stage, the show was starting to lose some ratings and, you know, it, that's not to say that when I found out that the show was axed, I was, I mean, I was quite sad, you know, I was, sad because I was about to become a dad. (laughs) And so there was, there was that, um, you know, I just lost my gig and, you know, I've got a kid that's going to come out in a a month or something. Mm. Um, but, but also I just felt sad because it was the end of an era. So, you know, whether I was involved in it or not, I would have been sad anyway, because it was an end of a, an era. And that era has never been replaced. That show was really the last of the, um, Australian variety shows, like right. proper variety shows. Yeah, yep. Um, there was a bit of a shot at a comeback. Were you part of that? No, well, basically what happened in 2009, they did two reunion shows. Um, I was still living in London, so I flew out to do those two shows. And and then um, the first show was really great. The second show was massively controversial and then um, in 2010, they brought the show back for 20 weeks, and I wasn't involved in it. By that stage, right. I just moved. I had just moved back to um, Australia, and I was touring, doing a musical, actually, which is West Side Story. So um, they decided. I think Daryl decided to, to put in a, a completely new band. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the UK. You ended yeah. up going over there for a while. So what was that for? Um, you know, I've, I always wanted to have an experience of living outside of Australia. I mean, obviously, it, you know, living in the US would have been, you know, that was my, my main goal. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, circumstances led to me moving to London. And as a result of that, um, because my parents are from Malta, um, I was able to get a European passport, which meant that I wasn't going to have any issues, you know, living and working in the UK. Whereas in the US, it would have been 
you know, somehow I would have had to have gotten a green card. So um, I had um, I had moved there with this passport and then I got a, a, a gig teaching at a, a drumming school in London called Drum Tech. And so I taught there um, for the whole time that I was there for, you know, the four years. And then uh, I just, I did gigs there. I, I just played, in, you know, Ronnie Scott's and all these other clubs in London and did some touring, to, uh, you know, played in different parts of Europe. It was, it was great. Was that drum tech related to the Australian drum tech? Or uh, no, or no, it's a different, no, completely different, different thing, thing uh, yep. with it spelt differently. Oh, okay. So T-E-C-H instead of the T-E-K. Yeah, Yeah, right. yeah. Yep. Cool. When did you leave the UK to come back? What made you come back? And what did you do when you got back here? All right. So um, I, I basically left the UK because the global financial crisis had hit. And uh, the gigs had dried up and I was sort of effectively um, homeless by this stage and uh, I was really struggling. Mm. So um, I decided to move back. And then, so that was uh, 10 years ago that I moved back. And I think the, I think on the second day that I was back, uh, I got offered to tour doing um, playing drums on West Side Story. Right, this and is around the time that the that next run of Hey Hey y- yeah was that, going. That, like you just that, said, that's before, right. Yeah. So, so yeah. um, I moved back. Um, I did that tour for eight months. I managed to mm-hmm. save a fair bit of money, which was really handy because um, I was really down to my last two thousand uh, dollars right. when I was living in London. That's Australian dollars, not pounds. So um, right. it wasn't going to get me far. So I moved back, got that gig, toured, saved money. And then, I, and then after that, I found it really hard to break back into the scene. Mm. It, took, it took, I reckon, three or four years, you know, for certainly for people to stop thinking that I was just visiting from the UK. So the breaking, wow. back, breaking back into the Melbourne scene was harder than breaking into the London scene. Really? Yeah, it's, it's so bizarre. Right. And a lot of the guys that, that were there when you left, were they still there or was it a whole new breed of players coming through? Um, would... It was a bit of both, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, the, like Jerry, Jerry was, um, you know, Jerry was, you know, still playing lots of gigs and still is playing lots of gigs as he was when I left. Mm. Um, but then other players um, emerged, like Daniel Daniel Ferrugia was, uh, who's not related to me. Mm-hmm. You know, he was doing a lot of things. He was doing a lot of really good work. So there, you know, there was him. So I was kind of up against <laughs> up against some serious heavyweights, you know. And mm. and um, then there's all the other players who were. You know, not like not drummers who you know I, I would go and check out. You know, young bass players and singers who started booking me for gigs. So, uh, you, you know that the scene was pretty healthy. Although the kind of work that I enjoyed doing didn't exist anymore. So when I got back, you know, the studio scene had pretty much died, mm. and there was really not much in the way of television work. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it sort of took a little bit of adjusting to get back and just when I got back and also just getting to know people, you know, who, who who had sort of moved into the scene and, you know, so there was a lot of drummers who'd moved into Melbourne from 
um, interstate. So I was getting to know those people as well. 2008, you wrote this in your newsletter that you you um, nearly gave it away. So was this kind of a culmination of not being able to get those gigs? And um, oh, that, that was actually 2018. That, uh, 18. That, sorry, sorry. That's what yeah, I meant. Yes. Yeah. I, just... <laughs> um, I, I just went, I went through a phase where I was, um, you know, I just sort of kept asking myself, you know, why, why am I not getting the gigs that I want? And uh, mm. it was really terrible. Like I was um, starting to feel very, you know, excluded. Um, mm. And, and it's really just my own imagination, to be honest with you, that was making me feel that way because, you know, I was I was still doing gigs, but I kept thinking, you know, why is he doing that gig? Why is she doing that gig? Why aren't I doing that gig? You know, and then I kept going through that. It was a little bit pathetic, to be honest with you, but I just thought, man, maybe I, maybe my time is up. Maybe maybe this is it. Maybe I'm done, you know. And and then um, what had happened was I, I, I did a gig of playing some music that I really enjoyed and I filmed it and I, I watched the footage back and... Um, I was I was kind of reminded myself that when I was a 15-year-old starting to take lessons, if I could have a look at that footage as a 15-year-old, I would have I would have been so, sort of somewhat happy because I was doing what I set out to do as a 15-year-old. Right. And and so that that's where my comfort came from. Um that I I, rem, I was reminded that I was on track and so that you know that was um that was a bit of a a shift in my mental state you know i think it's important to always remind yourself why you got into this industry as hard as it is man it's it's very hard now um and so it's good to remind yourself why you got in it and uh just give yourself the opportunity to always do those things that you love if it's playing a particular type of music that you love then you know you've you've got to do it mm. Um, when did you get the idea to start the um, the YouTube channel? The idea, um, <laughs> my girlfriend was really saying, "Man, you got to do this. You got to do this." And I, I kept putting it off. I kept putting it off because I was so uh, intimidated by the learning curve involved when it came to editing video. And I just got to a point where I thought, "Well, you know what? I've got to do it." So she really, Lana really encouraged me. So um, I ended up, you know, getting a bad sort of old version of Final Cut Pro and learnt how to use a camera and it did some basic editing and it, you know, it actually sucked and I was really bad at it. And <laughs> then I just became very nerdy about it and sort of learnt, learnt more about camera settings, learnt more about editing, um, color grading, you know, just all of that, that sort of stuff. I was never happy with how I was angling the cameras and, you know, and, 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 you know, I ended up buying some sort of fairly inexpensive pieces of equipment, like, you know, a good softbox um, lighting, um, bought one of those. And um, I ended up using, you know, like I've got a, an iPhone 11. That's my, that's my second camera. Yeah. And so that, you know, so now I've got two cameras and, uh, you know, I, I watched videos like Mike Johnson's videos always look really beautiful. So he's my benchmark, 
um, you know, he's one guy I would really love to meet and hang out with him. You know, I could, I, I, I kind of love where he's at. Um, so it's, and, and it will always improve. So, you know, if I get extra money, you know, I'll buy a better camera. If, um, also, you know, I record the drums into Pro Tools. So, you know, the first thing I do is mix the drums in Pro Tools and then import all the footage. So, so there was all of that stuff that I had to learn. And that's what put, that's what um, kind of put me off doing it for a long time. Now that I'm into it, um, it I, I got to say, it's definitely made me happy. Uh, mm. And it's, it's sort of given me a sense of relevance and, and connected to the community because now it's not just the local community, like the local drumming community, but it's a worldwide community. And, um, yep. and it's also like having my own TV show. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I like the stretch video. That's the stretch that I was taught by um, when I was in New Zealand, the ex-Symphony Orchestra drum, uh, percussionist drummer, Norman Gadd, his name was. Oh, right. Yeah, and uh, he taught me that. My first lesson, the stick, twist it, twisting the stick, and then, you know, ha- yeah, having your inverted elbows. and you know, Yeah. It was, it was cool to see that. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I thought I'd put that up there. You know, I've, I've, mm. I've, I've collected so much information over the years, mm. and I'm at this point committed to doing a video every week. Um, oh, that, that may change, you know, in the future, depending on other things that happen as a result of that. But, yep. you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Um, I'm loving the connection that I have with, you know, drummers and, uh, you know, it's just, it's something I've, uh, I never thought I'd do, but I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would. That's cool. Um, you know, you, you talk about, um, like the quality of the videos and, and Mike Johnson being the sort of the benchmark um your videos look very very good and they sound very very good you know during this um all the stuff that's going on musicians all out of work now there's i'm envisioning lots of musicians getting into the online video type thing um i know personally when i'm looking through something to look at and i start playing it and it looks and it sounds shit I'm not going to watch it. So, yeah. So yeah, just, yeah, it's all about that quality, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I was afraid of, you know, because yep. if, if this, if the sound wasn't good, um, you know, if the drum sound wasn't good, people are going to be less prepared to engage with it. And mm. then same with, um, you know, if they can't hear what I'm saying. Uh, so, so those, th- those elements are very important to me. And, um, and then you know if it if it looks good then that's that's great too. So I, I wanted to have a professional look about it, mm. and and um, just something that people are going to enjoy tuning into every week. Yeah, that's great. Um, you don't mind a bit of woodworking yourself? Eh? <laughs> yeah. Don't don't mind using the old the old chisel and the and yeah. I, I think your stuff on your Instagram is awesome, man. Like, oh thanks. Yeah. So how long have you been into that stuff? Uh, a couple of years. I mean, I did. So when I was a little kid, you know, I'd go around to my grandparents' place because they lived up the street from me. My dad, my granddad was always, um, you know, making stuff out of wood. So he he kind of taught me a few things as a kid, like how to use a, how to use a, a coping saw, um, how to use a plane, um, you know, how to use a soldering iron, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then so by the time I got to high school, I went to a, a, a tech school. So they had, you know, sheet metal and woodwork and, um, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, tool making and stuff like that. So I, I did all of those subjects. And then that was it. After after I stopped doing that, was the end of it, you know. And then mm. a couple of years ago, I, I was uh, actually on tour and I just went down that, you know how you go down that YouTube rabbit hole? Yeah. I went down that rabbit hole and it, I ended up watching um, videos on how to cut dovetails. Yeah. And, man, I'm not kidding you. I was addicted. <laughs> I just got hooked. Awesome. And I, 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 I went to my parents' place and picked out some tools that I owned when I was a kid and uh, sort of started collecting tools. I started restoring old tools that my grandparents had passed on to me. And, um, yeah, I just... It's, it's became an obsession. <laughs> are you still into it now? Are you still doing it now? Um, yeah, well, I, 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 I just haven't had time. I haven't yeah. had time lately. I'm actually right at, you know, the, for the last couple of days I've been, I built a, you may have seen this on Instagram, I hand built a giant work, like a big workbench. Yeah. And um, so uh, I've, I've basically just resurfaced it. So basically involved planing the top of it back to bare wood, making mm-hmm. sure it was all out of twist, let's say. And yep. then um, just refinishing that now, so um, mm-hmm. sort of like a new a new lease on life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's talk about what the future may possibly hold. I mean, you would have had a few days to think about things. Um, yeah, what's what's your sort of take on what's about to happen? What's happening? Um, there's. You know, like the I, I, my my biggest concern for me personally, and I would say this for everyone in my position, all of us, is is financial. I mean, it's like yeah, when you're a musician, there's a certain degree of financial or a lack of financial security, unless yep. you teach, you know, at a school and you're on salary and all of that sort of stuff. You probably have less to worry about, but. I don't teach at a school. I basically just teach privately and I do gigs. So there's that financial um, concern. Mm. Um, all of all of this current crisis aside, I mean, I'm, I've been thinking about, you know, how I want to secure my future anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, I do have a plan with the YouTube channel. So, you know, I have Great. a three-year plan um, and that is three years from when I started the channel, maybe seven months back or eight months back, um, I, I want want to have amassed a large subscriber base um, and then have video content that you can buy. So, for example, I might yep. have a, a five-video package uh, that you can download on how to play jazz or, yep. um, you know, how to play this sort of thing or whatever. Uh, and that I've got to say, that's where the woodwork thing has been really helpful because I watched, I'm not kidding you, thousands of woodwork videos. <laughs> and, and the way it works there is that, you know, like there might be a guy who's going to make a, a workbench. And so you watch, you know, part one of the workbench and then you watch, then, you know, you watch, a, say, a, a three-part video series on how to build a workbench so you go to the guy's website and then you can download the plans for five bucks you know that's how that's how that's that's that that business model and so i want to do something like that with me so um i i'm going to have products that you can download like pd there will eventually be a pdf for just about every video that you can download for a dollar 
Um, in addition to that, um, I, I bought a bunch of leather the other day, so I'm going to be making um, leather drum key holders, which oh, will be cool. available on my website. Uh, in addition to that, my two books, Groove Perspectives and the Groove Perspectives Play Along, will be e-books, which you can download any part of the world um, that you, you can get from like the like the bookstore at Apple or whatever. And um, uh, you know, it's it's going to be sort of partly merchandise driven as well, like you know, really nice t-shirts. You know that that that's the plan. Yeah, um, awesome. I think I'm getting to an age where you know, I, I don't enjoy lugging gear around so much, you know. Um, so I, I'd rather sort of play a little less and just put more effort into and energy into the YouTube channel. And then once that is, you know, earning me some money, then I can just go out and play the gigs that I want to do, like put my own band together. I mean, I, I've, I've still not played my own music live, even though I, I, I released it, my first album eight years ago and I still haven't played that music live. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, ne- you know, right now, because everybody's home, it's a good time to be promoting this stuff, eh, these videos, because I, I found myself in the last couple of days, of course, you, you, you know, you get right into that social media thing and all this fear and all this, the shit going on. But then I find myself going to look for stuff that I enjoy that looks good, that makes me happy and sounds good, you know? So, you know, this is where around the time I'm not like I'm researching for this, this interview with you, I saw your videos and I just thought how bloody good they look and how great they sound, you know? So, um, yeah, I guess the other half of my answer to what you were saying, I guess, is that, you know, apart from those financial concerns, we have all this time now. And, and and so, you know, we are essentially creative people. So we've got that combined with all the technology that's available to us, you know, smartphone technology, that which allows us to, you know, make nice looking footage, which we can just instantly upload to YouTube or Facebook. So I think I think there is, I think it's going to make people more. It's going to force people to be a bit more creative with what they do and also coming yeah. up with creative ways to then secure some financial security as well. Yeah. Because, you know, the last couple of days there's been a lot of um, uh, live streaming going on but also a lot of people like posting pictures of their really crappy looking home studio and, and not much thought and effort has gone into it. So, you know, personally for me, it's kind of, I just scroll along. <laughs> I see something that looks really good, you know, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, th- I think in, in, in this case, you, you might stand out there. So that's, I hope that's so. Good. Oh, this is an observation on a, um, Instagram photo I saw when you were in Iceland. Yeah. You were in an All Blacks, All Blacks beanie. Did I you was. Know, do you know? Yeah. Uh, What's I, going on there? Well, I'll tell you, um, <laughs> my parents... Uh, my, my, my parents have done three cruises to New Zealand. Right. And, uh, on every trip they, you know, they buy, they've bought me souvenirs. Yeah. That's and, definitely one of the duty free beanies for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I've got a, I've got a couple myself. <laughs> yeah. It's that they, uh, they, they, I, I always ask for, um, I always ask them to get me a tiki. 
And yep. so I've got I've got a couple of those. Then on the third trip, they couldn't they couldn't find one. Like um, so, they ended up buying me uh, this sort of brass kiwi. Right. Uh, so, but but there's always you know the t-shirts or I think yeah, I've, yeah. I think I've got a beanie as well, an all blacks yep. beanie, yep. and and a, a and a New Zealand cap. So <laughs> I, I wore the um, I was wearing the the all blacks beanie. Uh, last year on our travels, I saw the location of where the where the photo was taken, and I clicked on it, and I had to zoom out, and it said it was in Iceland. Yeah, that's that right. We were cool. in Iceland last. Yeah, this time last year, actually. Yeah, yeah. I asked uh, like a question on Facebook, um, like I was going to be talking to you today. Was there anything you wanted to, we wanted to talk about? So a couple of people replied. Um, one of them was hey hey, so we've already talked about that. Um, guy named Stuart Anderson. He said he, he saw and photographed you doing the Paul Simon show with Grace Knight and Wendy Matthews last year. That's said, right. The band did a, the band did an amazing job of recreating the sounds of many more musicians that were on the stage. Um, it would be interesting to hear how he approaches those songs, so that enough drums and percussion are covered to stay true to the originals. Ah, uh, that's interesting. Um, so th- that that gig with um, Wendy and Grace is a Paul Simon, uh, you know, playing the music of Paul Simon, and which includes some Simon and Garfunkel songs. But that's actually the second Paul Simon gig I've done. So the first one I did was another band called One Trick Pony, and we we're playing basically that whole album, One Trick Pony, which is Steve Gadd. So. Um, I was, I was sort of familiar with that music and that style of of playing, or, or at least those songs especially. By the time we got to do Wendy and Grace's gig, there was obviously a lot more material to learn um, because they they sort of went back in history and did more of the sort of Simon and Garfunkel things as well. Um, in terms of the parts, um, I, I mean, you know, we I get to, I, I get to play Fifty Ways to Live Your Lover late in the evening. G- great drum track tracks great yeah. drum parts but there's a lot of other songs with really nice drum parts like um uh gee i'm trying to remember the name of the song i think steve gad plays on it and it's it's sort of like playing brushes on a snare drum with a wires turned off but you're playing 16th notes so you're not necessarily playing like a jazz drummer would with, with brushes but just more playing uh a single stroke 16th note thing with accents um yeah. And just just trying to replicate those things so that they sound like the record, but yeah, um, but you know, make it sort of as percussive as I can. So songs like um, um, "You Can Call Me Al," I've ripped off the drum part from that, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple of other things like "Boy in the Bubble," um, trying to rip off those parts as, uh, pretty much as they are on the record. In terms of the groove, no, I don't copy the fills and all that sort of stuff, but it's just try to be stylistically accurate. I mean, if if, um, if this person is saying that it sounds quite full for a four-piece band, then we're, we're all, you know, doing what's required of us in that case, I guess. That's great. Awesome. Well, Darren Frugia, thanks so much for being on the Gig Life podcast. Like I said, um, it's been a real honour to talk to you and like, and you were a massive uh, influence and inspiration on me early on in my drumming career seeing seeing you on Hey Hey so it's really cool to be sitting here talking to you man so it's a buzz it's a real trip <laughs> thank you so much for having me Matt I really appreciate it 
no, sweet ass. Um, good luck with everything and um, stay safe and, and stay smart. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the other side of this uh, corona thing. <laughs> <laughs> Craziness. Cheers, man. Thank you so much. All right, Darren. Take it easy, man. See you, Stevie. All right. Bye. See you, bro. Bye. Bye.
Oh, oh, oh.